When I was growing up, my sister and I, um, we loved to fight. We were six years apart. We're still six years apart, obviously. Um, but we were six years apart in age. Um, so when, I, when she was 12 years old and like was, was starting to be full of like the drama of middle school and that carries over now to when she's almost 40, but like when she was six years old and like was, was full of all the drama and excitement and like started talking about people and all that stuff, I was six and I was a good little brat brother. Oh, I was, I was always in her stuff, in her room when she didn't want me there and like just aggravating her, bothering her. It was great. Uh, when she was 15 and she started to like, 15, 16, 17 years old and started to have like boyfriends, I made a point to like go and aggravate them, go tattle on what they were doing in the room and stuff to mom and dad and they would get in trouble and she would constantly be yelling at me. It was a constant fight in our house between me and my sister until I, until I was about 16 years old and then all of a sudden we became friends. Um, but during those years, when we would fight, we, had, we, we were really good at it, like we knew how to get at each other. But the problem was is that sooner or later it would get loud, and when it got loud, that meant one of the referees that lived in the house would come in, either mom or dad. Now when dad would walk in, dad, it was whip everyone, send them to their room crying, and he didn't care. And he's going to ask questions later, right? Corporal punishment for everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone gets a whipping, there's no, like, he's just swinging and it doesn't matter, and then everybody ends up crying in their room. He'll ask questions later, and if you didn't do anything wrong, you were what we call collateral damage, and oh well. My, my mom, on the other hand, she knew that she could be louder than our loud, absolutely. She made a point that she would come in, shut down whatever the argument was, Send us to our room, so we had solitary, solitary confinement for, for, you know, for 15, 20, 30 minutes a week, whatever it was. Then, at the end, she made a point that she believed in two things. She would drop a mom-ism on us, and then she believed in, in, in public humiliation, let's say. So we would have to come out, she would give us a talking, and then it was hug, make up, and you got to hold the hug for 10 seconds in the middle of the house. And you got to kiss your sister. I didn't want to do that at that time, right? The one thing, though, I remember, the one that I remember I consistently heard over and over and over, the momism that still rings true in my mind today, is that she would, she would say it loudly and proudly, it does not matter if you like each other. You will love each other. Think about that statement. It does not matter if you like each other. You will love each other. Now, growing up, we started to like and love each other. Now me and my sister are great friends. But I think there's some truth in that. It doesn't matter if we like the person. It only matters if we love them. Today, Jesus does not say that you have to love, that you have to like everyone. He does say you will love them. You will love them, though. I know in my, my own life, there's a lot of times that there's, I'm, I'm going through my life, I'm, I'm going to, to Walmart or, or I'm driving in traffic and somebody cuts me off. You know what? I don't like that person at that time. And if they would hear me, they could probably know that I would not like them at that time. But God doesn't ask us to like everyone. He asks us to love them. In the same way, in our relationship with God himself, I know in my, in my past, like when I was discerning about seminary and questioning, and like, you really want me to break up with this girl to go to the seminary? Like, you really want me to do this? I, whenever that was all going on, I remember there was a lot of times I sat in prayer, and I looked at the crucifix, or I looked at the Eucharist, or I looked at the tabernacle, and I said, God, I really don't like you right now. 
but I love you. But I don't necessarily like you. But I know I have to love you. See, Jesus today, when he's talking to us, he, ba- he says, in, with no uncertain terms, that he calls every single Christian to love. I think sometimes when we hear this scripture, we can be really, really quick to be like, oh yeah, I heard that before, I know it, that's all good. It's a really simple thing, like love God, love neighbor, that's all good, yeah. But I think whenever we break open what's actually happening in this episode, what's actually being said by Jesus in this exchange with this lawyer, with this scholar of the law, I think what's actually happening can really elicit something for us. It can tell us a very, very central truth to what it means to be a Christian. So let's break it open. Let's look at this week's Gospel with new eyes. Because sometimes when we're too familiar with something, we get a little bit too close and we can kind of write it off. We can go into autopilot. Now they have been, during the course of this Gospel, last week as well, they have been trying to catch Jesus. The religious elite have continued to try and catch Jesus. They want to discredit Him as a teacher or they want to get Him arrested. Those are the two goals that they have throughout the Gospel of Matthew at this time. And what we hear, what we see at this point, is that today they're going to try and discredit him. So all the Pharisees, Jesus has already made the, made the Sadducees just kind of be quiet and walk away with their head down. Now it's the Pharisees' turn, and they all get together, and they're scholars of the law, and they find this one guy who really knows the law, and they say, hey, why don't you ask him this question? Because they're trying to get him. Because I can kind of imagine them like huddled up in the corner, like we're going to get him with this one. So this scholar of the law, this lawyer, the, the canon lawyer of Jewish tradition, let's say, he walks out and he says, Rabbi, what, what is the greatest of all the commandments? Now we may not understand what that question is. He has, he has kind of this, he wants to discredit him, he has this bad motivation behind it, but it's a fair question. Because what would happen in the Jewish tradition is that the teachers, the rabbis who were going out to the synagogues, who were going out and proclaiming their faith and sharing and educating the people, what would happen is, is they had their kind of elevator speech, if you will, of the faith. Think about an elevator, like you get into an elevator and you're riding up to the top floor and somebody would look at you and say, why do you believe in Jesus? Do you have your 30 seconds that you can tell them? The the rabbis would walk around and they would have this ready to go. And questions like this were common questions. And what they would do, they would share their 30 seconds. They would share their simple teaching, their, their, their summary, if you will, of the entire faith. So when he asks Jesus, he says, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus has over 600 commandments to choose from. And he could say a bunch of different things. He could say, well, you know what, there's the Ten Commandments, let's start there. He could say there's some of the dietary laws or some of the worship laws or some of these other laws that were in the Old Testament. He's got 600-something to choose from. And when a guy asks, what is the greatest commandment? He's looking for one. And Jesus takes a liberty and He gives him two. And I think the reason why He gives him two is something that we can really dive into today. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, your soul, with everything that you are. You are to love the Lord your God. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus takes a liberty. He gives him two answers to a single question. And he says everything is dependent on these two commandments. 
See, what happens is, is Jesus links love of God and love of neighbor. That if we truly love God, we will love our neighbor, and if we truly love our neighbor, we will love God. But what happens oftentimes in our life is that we try and split these two things. Whether we realize it or not, sometimes we want to emphasize one over the other. Whenever we're con- when, when we as Christians are called to live a life, a live a gospel life that is both and, not either or. For example, what does it look like when a church loves God alone and ignores neighbor? That, that may sound harsh. Like, what, what happens whenever we only love God? Like, that's a good thing, but, but, but we ignore our neighbor. Well, that's a church that becomes like very self-reverential. Where we kind of look at ourselves, look how great I am. At least I'm not one of those people. Hey, I, I go to church every week, unlike them. It becomes a very individualistic faith. Right? Oftentimes, that, that faith, it kind of, you know what, you might proclaim the truth, but usually it's kind of got some, some bite behind it. And it's more of a, con- a condemnation of everybody else than a proclamation of the good news, of the gospel. That's a, that's a, that's a church that only loves God and ignores our neighbor. I don't really care about them because I'm right with God. That's, that's not the full picture. In the same way, a, a church that only focuses on neighbor and not God, it ceases to be a church. If, if it's a church that only focuses on neighbor, only focuses on the community, and there is no place for God in that picture, that's not a church. That's why we turn spirituality into advocacy. It looks like a political protest more than it looks like a church worshiping our Lord. That's where where service might be a bunch of good things happening, but it's not animated by the Lord and it's not bringing people back to His love. It's not revealing His love to the world as perfectly as it could. You see, our church, we as, a, as Catholics, we as Christians, are called first and foremost to live in both of these worlds. If you will, we're meant to have a vertical element to our faith of us before God. We're also meant to have a horizontal element to our faith of sharing the gospel with our brothers and sisters, of, sh- of spreading the joy and the, and, the, and the mercy of God to the world around us, of actually caring about others in our world, even if they might think or act differently than we do. If we think about it that way, from a vertical standpoint and a horizontal standpoint, the place where we see both of these come into perfect communion is a vertical and a horizontal is the cross. Because what happens on the cross? When Jesus dies on the cross, what is He doing? He is being perfectly obedient, perfectly out of love to the Father, to God. He is loving God above all else because He didn't want to do it. But at the same time, He's also loving each one of us. Because when He lays down on the cross, He doesn't just do it for us collectively. He doesn't just do it for us as the world. But He does it for you. He does it for me. He lays down on the cross for my sin. For my struggle. 
for my shortcomings, for my inability to love. You see, Jesus in the cross marries these two things the same way He does, and He calls it out in today's Gospel, that love of God and love of neighbor are two lungs of a Christian. That if we're not breathing with both, we're going to die. We look, at, we look at somebody like Mother Teresa. I know, for, I know so, a lot of people, there's images of Mother Teresa praying, and there's images of Mother Teresa working out in the, in the slums of Calcutta. But there was one story, one story in particular that really sticks out, that a, one of her sisters came to her, and she was, she was criticizing the convent. She was basically saying, like, mother, like mother there, there are so many people that are out in the streets. There are so many homeless, so many destitute, so many who are poor and suffering and hurting and just struggling to get by. They're dying in the streets. She said, we could be doing so much more. But every morning we wake up and we sit before the Blessed Sacrament for an hour and we pray. Like, just imagine if for a week we would do less. Like, imagine if we wouldn't do that hour. We would do seven more hours of work a week. We could do 365 more hours in, the, in a year of working with these people, of helping to save people out of these dire situations. She said, like, the, the, the schedule's just not right. Mother Teresa was listening, and she said, you're right. The schedule is not right. We're going to have to change it. Next morning, she woke up. They woke up. They saw their schedule. They had two hours in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Because she understood that service without the Lord is not, is not going to bear the fruit of the kingdom of heaven. See, for us, I think we, we, we take a lesson from this that our, our life is meant to breathe with both lungs. Right? We as Christians are meant to live this out of both and, not an either or. But where do we learn... Where do we learn our best examples of how to truly love? Where do we learn our best examples of how to stand before God and before our brothers and sisters, our neighbor, and love them, love them more perfectly? I think when we look in the world, there's two, there's two categories that we can kind of look at. And, and myself and Father Bruce last night were talking, and it, it's a... He brought this up, and I think, he's very, I think we're very, very, it makes a lot of sense. He said, you know, when you look at the world around us, most of the time, the rich and powerful, and the rich and powerful together, like, they, they don't love each other very well, most of the time. Most of the time, the rich and powerful and the rich and powerful, that's the two categories that are trying to love each other. There's some kind of back, there's some kind of other motive. There's some kind of other reason for helping out or doing other things. Most of the time, not everybody, but there's a lot of times that, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a tension. that they, It's not a pure thing. It, usually the political power or, or I'm going to get a favor later. That, there's, there's a lot of times just the rich and powerful and the rich and powerful, they, they don't love well. And then I think if we even take that, like the rich and powerful and the poor and destitute, like most of the time, they don't, it, it, the tension still is there. Because the poor and destitute are begging and struggling and, and want and want and want. And the rich and powerful, they, they got a tax write-off when they, when they give, when they share, when they help. Oftentimes, again, not everybody painting with a broad brush, but I think the purest place that we see love of God and love of neighbor, and the church stands by this, is in the poor. 
There was a bishop in Central America that once said that the poor know they need God. He said, the people I fear for are the people that have everything they need. The poor know they have to stand before God. If you're a farmer, you know you have to, you, you are, there's a certain way of, you, you're, you're like kind of vulnerable to whatever the weather does. If, if we're going to have a crop. When you're reliant on others, you have to be reliant on God. There's a way in which the poor reveal to us about a reliance on God above all else. The other thing is, is that the poor also know how to give from their poverty. And they know when they give, it's gonna, they're going to feel it. I two examples. One of them, I was on social media, YouTube, Facebook, one of those things, and videos were just playing one day. And I, I remember seeing this video. These two guys, these two brothers, they did a social experiment. What they did was is they, had a, they had a homeless guy that would set up shop on the street corner every day. And what they did was, is one of the brothers kind of dressed in a little bit more raggy clothes, and what he did was, is he set up shop 15 feet, roughly, away from the homeless guy. Now the homeless guy, he looked like a homeless guy. You could tell, like he hadn't showered, he had a kind of a scraggly beard, his clothes was really tattered and gross and, no, and worn. And down the way, you had a kid who looked, looked like he had kind of cleaned up a little bit, but... He, wasn't, he definitely looked, didn't look like the street person on the other side, but he looked like he might have just been starting out on the street. And what they did was, is that people, whenever they would pass, they would drop a dollar for the kid, but they wouldn't drop a dollar for the homeless guy. And after a couple of people passed, they would drop some change for the kid, and the homeless guy started calling out and just asking them, be like, hey, you got anything else? You got anything else to spare? And over the, course of, over the course of a few minutes of this video, you start seeing people react a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more strong at him. Telling him he's a bum, telling him go get a job, telling him this, tell, that's a kid, he can take, but you, you, you're capable, you can go and do, and all these things, and like they were getting angry at him. A couple of people even pushed him, somebody threw something at him. A little while later, they show a moment where the kid got a bad reaction. And the homeless guy was the first one to come to his defense to give him the little bit of change that he had and to say, here, go get you something to eat. He said, you don't belong in the street. I do. The poor know how to give from their poverty. I remember when I was in seminary, we went to Guatemala, and there was a, there was a lady, uh, we, we went to her home. Uh, her home was about the size of the, of the sanctuary up here, you know, 15, 20 feet wide. And it was a tin building. It was a little shack, dirt floor. Me and three other seminarians, so it was four of us that walked in. And when we walked in to do this little house visit and just to kind of talk to her and broken, my broken Spanish and our translator and just kind of trying to have a conversation with her as much as we could. I remember we walked in, we were visiting with her. Now this woman didn't have anything. It took a 30-minute round trip to go get a bucket of water that was gonna, out of the stream that was going to be her water for the day. When we sat down, the first thing, she, we saw her kind of moving around the house and trying to get chairs and stuff for us. And the first thing that she does is she puts a cup of coffee in front of each one of us and goes dig from, a, a, from this hidden spot and pulls out four little pieces of bread for her guest, completely giving from her poverty. And she wasn't attached to any of this stuff. She had a love of God, 
that was hers. And she knew how to love her neighbor. The poor teach us how to love both. The poor teach us what it is to rely and then to give. To rely on God and to give from our poverty. This is the call of every Christian. This is the call of each one of us. Is not to live a faith that is just for love of God and the heck with everybody else. And it's not to live a faith that is just advocacy on the social world, in the social world and we ignore the Lord. We're called to be a both-and faith. We're called to breathe with both lungs. We're called to be vertical and horizontal. We're called to share our gifts, to stand before our Lord, the mercy that God has given us to then show, the love that God has given us to then reflect. This is the mission of a Christian. May we be bold enough in our, world, in our life, in our world, to both love God and love our neighbor, as Christ asked us today. We don't have to like everybody, but we are called to love them.